Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. John chapter 21. So I am moving down to verse 15, but if you read the first few verses, the first 14 verses in the chapter, what has happened is Simon Peter is with some of the other disciples. Uh, Peter looks at them and says, I'm going fishing. And they said, we're going to go with you. And they go out to the boat at night and they catch nothing. And as the sun is coming up, Jesus is standing on the shore and his disciples didn't recognize that it was Jesus. And he yells out to the boat. He says, children, have you caught any fish? And they said, no. And he tells them to cast the net on the right side and you'll find some. And when they do, uh, they, can't, they can't get all the fish into the net. Um, and... The disciple whom Jesus loved, John here is likely referring to himself, he does this other places in John, he says to everybody, it is the Lord, and Peter jumps out of the boat, um, Bible says, threw himself into the sea, they're in shallow water, uh, he goes to the shore, and when they get to the land, Jesus has a fire going in a charcoal pit, he's already making some fish, and he says, fellas, go get some bring some of those other fish here and I'm going to make you breakfast. And he says those words, come and have breakfast. And so that's the context here that we're reading uh, in John when we get to verse 15. And verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. And so Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John makes a comment here in verse 19. He says, this he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So the, the path I'm going this morning is that Jesus issues a call to Peter in at least three areas. He calls Peter back to right relationship with him. He calls Peter to feed and care for his people. And he calls Peter to suffer and if necessary, die for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, your word is... God breathed. It is the Spirit of God in writing, and we take it very serious and we approach it this morning with reverence. We ask you this morning that you would apply your word to our hearts, that you would anoint my lips to speak, 
and to communicate well, and that you would anoint our hearts to receive your word. You said in Scripture that your word would not return void, so we're asking you in these next few moments of time, Lord, to plant a seed that would bring a harvest. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 2009, Dan McKinnis, who was the pastor in the church I was serving in, he and I went to a minister's conference in Louisiana, and I picked him up about 6 o'clock that morning. And so he did not get to see when I picked him up the luggage that I had in my trunk. But when we got to the hotel in Alexandria and we began to get our stuff out, Dan got his little bag, and I got out probably a couple suitcases. And I'll never forget his reaction standing in the parking lot. It was like, oh my word, like, what did you bring? He goes, we're here for two and a half days. How did, why did you bring that much stuff? And I said, well, I always travel this way, and it's not the first time uh, I've heard it. I know I don't travel light. I know I always take too much stuff. You know, we take family vacations, and nowadays there's all these electronics and cords. There's computers and iPads and lots of cables, and uh, we travel with a, a fan. Uh, you know, it's, it's all this stuff that you have to take. And I, when I fly, I always look at these people that have just carry-on bags. And you can tell that's their luggage, and I always wonder how they do it. One of my best friends, ex-military, tells me, he said, it's very simple. He said, I take my clothes and I roll them up as tight as I can. And I, he goes, it's easy to travel with a, with a carry-on. So some people travel heavy and some people travel light. I traveled with a guy about six years ago. And when we got to the city we were at, I, I grabbed my luggage and I thought, he is going to give me a hard time like everybody does. And lo and behold, this guy took half his house. And I said something to him. I said, man, I said, that's, I, said, I think you have more luggage than I do. He goes, it's just, he goes, it's how I travel. He goes, it's just. So whether or not you travel heavy or light on your vacations probably is not going to really matter in your life. You either do or you don't, and it's not going to affect you spiritually. Max Licato wrote a book several years ago entitled Traveling Light, and he uses this analogy about carrying too much luggage to tell us that most people travel through life with far too much baggage. Weight from past sins and failures that burden you down, condemnation and guilt that causes the shoulders to droop, and pressure on the mind that keeps the head looking down. It's baggage. It's weight. It's the accumulation of a lifetime of failures, big and small, that snowball, and eventually you feel the weight on your shoulders. That is the state that Peter finds himself in in John 21. John 21 is the third time that Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. Now, get the timeline. In John 21, when Jesus is cooking breakfast on an open fire for the disciples, this is roughly six weeks after Peter denied knowing Jesus. And not only did Peter deny Jesus, but he made it a point out loud and in public in front of all of his friends to declare that 
Jesus, even if others forsake you, he said, I won't forsake you. I'll die for you. That's Peter. He's out loud in public in front of everybody saying, all these people may forsake you, not me. I'm with you to the end. I will die for you. And when the time comes for Peter to show this truth, to back up his words with action, he fails in a spectacular way. He denies that he knows Jesus. He curses to show that I'm not one of these Jesus followers. That's not me. And here he is on the seashore, six weeks removed from his failure. And in roughly three weeks, he is going to preach in Acts 2 the first sermon of the church. But he doesn't know that yet. All he knows is that six weeks ago, I failed Jesus. We know what's coming, but Peter doesn't. He thinks he's finished. And so what does Peter do when he thinks he's finished with Jesus? He goes back to what he did before he met Jesus. So Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out, got into the boat, and that night caught nothing. Peter's actions betray his mindset. I'm going back to do what I did before I met Jesus. This Jesus thing that lasted three or four years, that didn't work out. I'm just going back fishing. But Peter did not take into consideration three things. He did not consider the love that Jesus had for Peter. He did not consider the call that Jesus had on Peter's life. You know, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he didn't understand, he didn't comprehend the power of genuine, heartfelt repentance. So I, I want to slow down and read what Peter did. So in Luke 22, the Bible says, They seized Jesus and led Him away, bringing Him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And a servant girl, seeing Him as He sat in the light and looking closely at Him, said, That man was also with those people. And He denied it and said, Woman, I do not know Him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also were one of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, another person insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Picture that scene. Jesus had told him, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And when the rooster crows, Jesus turns and looks at Peter. They lock eyes. And can you imagine the condemnation that Peter felt? And the Bible says, Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. A few short years before this in Matthew 4, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, notice this phrase, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So at the beginning of Peter and Jesus' relationship, Peter is fishing 
and Jesus says the words, follow me. And now, years later, the scene is repeating again. Six weeks after Peter fails Jesus, the the God of grace, divine mercy in a glorified human body, looks at Peter who was fishing, doing the exact same thing he was doing when Jesus first met him, and he says to him a second time, Peter, follow me. And John is here also, and he's writing about it. And if you look at the first epistle of John, years later John writes this, and John says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. And I just wonder if John, when he writes this verse, this is being written 20, 30 years later, if John's not reminiscing to when he is a much younger man and this scene on the seashore when Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. John knows Peter's heart is condemned. And he says, Jesus, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then John, years later, decades later, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. The call to Peter is the call to us today And it is a call to restoration back into right relationship. Everybody fails. Everybody makes mistakes. The grace and mercy of God is astounding for all of us that come with heartfelt repentance. Judas failed Jesus in a spectacular way as well. But Judas never found a place of repentance. It drove Judas to jump off the side of a cliff. And the Bible said his bowels gushed out. Peter is in the same frame of mind, but the difference is is that Peter goes out and weeps bitterly, and he's restored because he has a heart of repentance. The second call is the call to suffer, and if necessary, to die for the gospel. So let's go back to the words of Jesus, follow me. Not only is this a call back into relationship, it is a call to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Footsteps that take a path that are much clearer, the path is much clearer than the path was years ago when Jesus says, Peter, follow me. Peter doesn't know what he's in for. I'm following this man that says he's the Messiah. I don't know what I'm, I don't know what's going to happen. It was very unclear to them. It's very obvious in the Gospels that it's unclear to them what's going on. The, the death of Jesus seems to to take them all by surprise, even though he alludes to it. It it scatters them. They're not all rallying around saying, well, he's dead now, but you just wait in a few days, he'll be back. No, they're huddled in a room terrified. They think they're next. So a few years ago, Peter doesn't know what he's getting himself into, but now the second time he knows. He's heard the words of Jesus. He's lived with him. He's walked with him. He's heard Jesus say, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And now Peter knows that cross was not a metaphor. It was a real wooden beam that was filled with splinters that a naked body was going to be nailed to. And Peter knows when Jesus says, follow me, that's the invitation Jesus is offering. I forgive you, Peter. But now come follow me. Hear the words of Jesus to Peter. Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you 
where you do not want to go. And John makes the commentary, this he said, to show what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. So the language of the stretching out of the hands was clear in the ancient world. This is not just my conjecture. This is established historically that they know that when people use that phrase to stretch out your hands, it was a phrase, a saying that represented crucifixion. Jesus is foretelling Peter's death. You will be a prisoner. You used to do and go where you wanted to, but there will come a day when someone else will tell you where to go and you will stretch out your hands and die. The first epistle of Clement, which was written roughly around the same time of the book of Revelation, it is not part of Scripture. It is not considered divinely inspired, but books like this do exist and they are a great source of uh, reference for what was going on in this time. We have a lot of these writings and Clement writes from the first century, he infers to us in his writings that Peter indeed did die as a martyr. Peter would hear these words from Jesus and would continue on in ministry for another 30 years before he died with those words hanging over his head. 30 years he would do ministry, walk, and know the Messiah prophesied the way I'm going to die. I know it's coming, I just don't know how and when. There is suffering that is part of the human experience. The Bible is rich in Scripture that addresses suffering and pain. It starts in Genesis and all through the Bible. The Bible addresses suffering and pain as part of the human experience. Physical, emotional, mental, it's very clear in Scripture. The Scripture doesn't try to shy away from that. But then there is the added layer of suffering that may come as a result of obeying the command of Jesus to follow Him. This is the kind of suffering Jesus foretells to Peter, and it is the kind of suffering that we may all experience in this life if we follow Jesus. In the past, to be a Christian in America meant that you would not experience persecution as a rule. Exceptions, yes, but as a rule, to be a Christian meant something different than what to be a Christian has meant in the rest of the world throughout the last 2,000 years. We have politicians that will go to camp meetings. That's a very unique American experience that somebody from the government would go try to get the Christian vote. Still happens today. That's, that's part of, so that's fine, but just know that that is the exception. That is not how the church has been presented to the world throughout nearly all of history and even today through much of the world. Now, people in the past may have experienced harassment on the job or at school. Family members may have shut you out. I've known those situations personally. I know of situations where a wife was physically abused because she attended church. She knew if she went to church, she would face a beating when she got home. I'm not minimizing any of those very real experiences because to those particular individuals, that was the reality of the world they lived in. So I'm not minimizing that. I'm saying that in those instances, as horrible as they are, they were targeted and they usually stem from one individual. In the past in America, there hasn't been a whole lot of systematic persecution toward the people of God from a 
another people group. Uh, the government has protected the rights of believers, and believers still today, and do it as long as we can. They'll appeal to the laws, to the Constitution. That's fine. Just know that, again, that is the exception. Throughout most of church history, the church could not appeal. It wasn't like the first century church could appeal to Rome and say, no, we have our rights. It's like, no, you don't. And they had no expectation of that. The book of Hebrews talks about the plundering of your property. It uses that phrase, the plundering of your property. And it frames it in a context that you should rejoice and have joy over that very thing. I don't know what the future holds. I know we should pray. We pray for true revival in a true sense, a national great awakening. Our land has experienced... Uh, over the last 300 years, we have experienced two great awakenings. Uh, and we pray for another great awakening. And if that happens, it will be a revival of repentance. It will be a revival of the supremacy of God in all things. And it will be a revival of prayer and the championing of the Word of God. And there are rough waters ahead unless there is another great awakening in our land. As a former pastor of mine often tells other pastors, and he'll say this repeatedly, brace yourself, we, are, we have a tsunami of dysfunction headed our way. That's the phrase he would use. We have a tsunami. He said, you think you're seeing something now. He said, the seeds are being sown that as ministers, what we will deal with in the future, we have a tsunami of dysfunction. A report was released just this week that nearly, this was in 2021, so two years ago, in 2021, nearly one-third of high school girls in 2021 contemplated suicide. That is staggering. One out of three. The number of attempts also increased. The sexual orientation of that individual had a drastic impact. Two to three times it increased the likelihood of that happening, of the contemplation and attempt of suicide. This is a government report that says, I believe it was the CDC, I don't remember, I think it was the CDC that put out this report this week, and said that girls who identified with particular orientations the likelihood of their suicide would increase two to threefold, depending on the exact identification. That is a tsunami of dysfunction, and that is our harvest field. This is, this is not 1955. That's not the world we live in. You can look at that and say, I'd love to have lived in the time when things were a little more normal, whatever that looks like, but that's not the time God called us to. He called us for such a time as this. He placed us to serve. The Bible says that David served his generation. It's the only generation David could serve. David was placed in a particular time and a particular place. We as the people of God live in a particular time and a particular place called to minister to a particular generation and culture. That's the world we are called to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter is going to minister for 30 years in a culture that was very similar to our culture. I'm not the first one. It's been going on for years. People that have drawn out parallels between the Roman Empire 
and the first century world of that day, which was the Roman Empire, Rome rules the entire known world. To be a Roman citizen, you could walk through the entire landscape of that part of the world, Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and you could walk through, and if you were a Roman citizen, you would be untouched. It's Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that the world knew. You were untouchable as a Roman citizen. So Rome ruled the world, but its morals were rotten. Its values were broken. And that's the world that Peter ministered in. And he likely died in Rome in the late 60s under Emperor Nero's persecution against Christians. We all probably have heard about Nero, and uh, he takes Christians and he, he uses them as human torches in his garden. When he wanted to light his garden at night, he would find Christians and he would light them on fire, and that's what would illuminate uh, his garden at night. There is a massive fire that destroys much of Rome. Some say that Nero started it. We don't know, but whatever the case, Nero blamed the Christians and, and used it as reason for mass persecution. And Nero was a unique individual. Not all emperors were like Nero. If you read his story, what he did to family members, he was psychotic. He was certifiably psychotic, and it's terrifying when you get somebody like that who has full autonomy and is in control, and that's what happens in Rome, and this is the way that we think that Peter died. But the spirit of the age of first century Rome that Peter died fighting against is the same spirit of the age that is descending upon 21st century America. And the question this morning that we are all faced with is, will we stand like Peter and say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. I will preach the gospel to a lost and dying world, no matter the cost. Peter does it knowing the cost. Jesus outlines the cost. He foretells of Peter's martyrdom. He's fighting against the spirit of the age. What is spiritual warfare? There's a lot of bad ideas in Christianity about what spiritual warfare is. This is why we have the Bible. We let the Bible inform us what, about these things. So the Apostle Paul talks about this. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So our weapons are to destroy arguments opinions and take thoughts captive. That is the crux of spiritual warfare. Much of spiritual warfare is the engaging in the battlefield of ideas, truth, reality, God-dependent, Bible-informed, Christ-exalting, self-debasing, joy-infused reality. That is the things that we're seeing, and I've been talking about it a lot, but the things that we've been seeing lately about gender identity and all of these things, that is spiritual warfare. There is a spiritual import behind that, and this is not a first a political battle, this is first a spiritual battle. 
to go back and say, we declare what God declared at creation. God made male and female. He created both of them, and God has an, an identity for both of those, and God has a purpose for both of those. And when it's worked through the God plan of creation, that man and woman complement each other, they make each other complete, and anything that rails against that is demonic because it comes against the plan of God. And so this is spiritual warfare. When we fight against these ideas, we are fighting against evil ideas. And ideas have consequences. So we do this best. So how do we do this best? We do this best by the preaching of the gospel. The simple message that the kingdom of God is at hand, that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is king of that kingdom. And we worship him and we walk in his ways and his teachings and we call others to do the same no matter the cost. The third call is the call to Peter to feed and care for his people. Now, usually when this passage has been preached, I will say the majority of sermons and definitely the majority of articles that I've read over the years about this passage, there is a conversation about the different words that Jesus used for love, because it's translated love three times. It's like, well, behind that there's different words in the original language for love. And then People want to distinguish, well, in one instance, Jesus said, feed my sheep. In another, he said, feed my lambs. And I think there are at least two problems going down that path. The first problem is Jesus was not speaking Greek in this conversation. Say, so, well, the Gospel of John is just like the rest of the New Testament. It's written in Greek. Like, you know, Jesus spoke English and that's good enough for me. He spoke King James English and that's good enough for me. And that's kind of been the, the tongue-in-cheek mentality sometimes. It's like, no, you're reading words that were written in Greek and translated into English, but it actually was spoken in a whole different language. Uh, the conversation, just like all the conversations in the gospel, are taking place most likely in Aramaic. So you have Jewish Hebrew people who their ancestors in the Old Testament are speaking Hebrew. We're in the New Testament. They're speaking Aramaic. They probably also know some Greek, but conversationally Aramaic is a third language that's introduced, and it's being written in Greek. And all of this causes a problem if you try to get too granular about these words that are behind here, because John is the one that's selecting the word. Yes, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but John is recounting a conversation that he heard in Aramaic, and he is writing it in in Greek. So to get too granular about those words and say, well, the third time Jesus spoke, he used this word, and there's the word agape, which is the highest love. My argument is that it may be reading too much into the text. Uh, that trying to dissect different words used for love simply might be pointless in this context. And the second and the bigger problem with doing this is that we miss the main point that Jesus is making to Peter. We miss all of these callings. You get so caught up in some of the, the minutiae that we miss the bigger picture of what's going on. Because Jesus and Peter are not sitting at each other, staring at each other, and Jesus is like, oh, you were sly there, you used a different word this time. No, that's not what's going on. It's a regular conversation just like we have. And Jesus is trying to communicate 
in a normal conversation, not having some coy wordplay. We're not looking for hidden meanings in the text. The meaning is right there. Jesus says, Peter, I need you to feed and tend to my flock, to my people. That's the calling. You go feed my people. He's calling Peter to pastoral ministry. Now, we use the word pastor and elder to mean the same thing in the New Testament and in our church today. So we, you read the word elder in the New Testament, and in the context of ministry, it's not speaking of age. Elders are pastors. These words are interchangeable. And I take Paul's words in 1 Timothy 5 to mean there are pastors who preach and teach, and there are pastors who lead but are not primarily engaged in the public preaching of Scripture, and they are yet still pastors. Now, I, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying this morning because I want to qualify what I'm going to say by saying I want us to reach people with the gospel. Please make no mistake and do not misunderstand what I say this morning. We want to see people who are lost find Jesus and come to faith through the ministry of this church 100% yes. But my calling here primarily is to feed the people of God who are here on a weekly basis and to offer care and to love you and to pray for you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is widely considered the greatest biblical expositor preacher of the 20th century, um, there's not many men left who, I think Jones died in 1980 or 81, um, but a prolific ministry um, through the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, not many men's sermons are listened to and readily available today that preached that many years ago. Uh, but Martin Lloyd-Jones was uh, an expositor uh, like very few men preach. And he wrote, The primary task of the church and of the Christian minister is the preaching of the Word of God. Preaching is not a separate component of the worship service, but it is rather an integral part of our worship. Preaching is worship in the sense that the preacher exalts, not exalts, but exalts, revels in, glories in the Word of God while the wonders of Jesus and His kingdom are revealed to the congregation through the preaching of the Word of God. We don't have here worship in the Word. Our exalting over the Bible is worship in the highest form. And the success or failure of a local church does not hinge on her programs, her facilities, her musical talent. Rather, it lies in the power of the Word of God. So preaching creates the tone, the pace, the rhythm for everything else that happens in the church and priorities and values are revealed in the content that flows from the pulpit. You do not have to attend a church very long to know if the blood of Jesus Christ and the fire of hell are central to her theology. The magnitude of ministry that flows from the preached word is influenced by the character of the person in the pulpit. A preacher's effectiveness is not dependent upon speaking ability, intellect, charisma, a preacher's power is not derived from carnal means, but instead from the anointing of the Spirit of God. I grew up listening to um, Brother Arnold preach, and he'd come hold revivals, and I'd go to them, 
And you could not hardly understand him because he didn't, there was something wrong with the cleft of his mouth. The guy couldn't talk right. And he would stand in a pulpit and he would preach and the power of God would fall and churches would, would want him to come. Couldn't hardly understand the guy. But the anointing that was there uh, to travel to church to church, I, I have no idea if, if he's even alive today, but I, he made an impact because I looked at him and said, wow, there's a guy that he's not a, he would never make it as a public speaker. Probably most people wouldn't go listen to him, but there was an anointing. The lost condition of humanity must drive the preacher to preach the scriptures without the fear and favor of people. Preaching is not a merely a glorified speech. It is not a sanctified lecture. It is not a TED Talk. Preaching is the revelation of the Bible expressed through human voice and personality. The preacher who walks to the pulpit under the anointing of the Spirit of God is not attempting to deliver a well-crafted speech that will draw the applause of the hearers. The preacher who is sensitive to the Spirit of God will unpack the meaning of the Bible under the anointing of God's Spirit. I am not called to entertain people. I am not called to make people laugh. I am not called to make people say, wow, that was really witty. Um, thank you for lightening my spirit today. That's not the calling. It was that kind of blood earnest preacher that George Whitfield, who was instrumental 300 years ago in the first great awakening, George Whitfield prayed God would raise up. And this is what George Whitfield wrote, Oh, that we shall see the great head of the church once more raise up unto himself certain young men whom he may use in this glorious employ. And what manner of men will they be, men mighty in the scriptures, their lives dominated by a sense of the greatness, the majesty, and the holiness of God, and their minds and hearts aglow with the great truths of the doctrines of grace. They will be men who have learned what it is to die to self, to human aims and personal ambitions, men who are willing to be fools for Christ's sake, who will bear reproach and falsehood, who will labor and suffer, and whose supreme desire will be not to gain earth's accolades, but to win the master's approbation when they appear before his awesome judgment seat. They will be men who will preach with broken hearts and tear-filled eyes, and upon whose ministries God will grant an extraordinary effusion of the Holy Spirit, and who will witness signs and wonders following in the transformation of multitudes of human lives. Whitfield's prayer rings true for our generation. The church needs an army of preachers who are dominated by the sense of the greatness and majesty and holiness of God. Much of the struggle in the modern church can be traced back to preachers who stand in the pulpit and feel the need to entertain the congregation. Great effort is made in some churches for the gospel message to be culturally acceptable. There's a whole other conversation there to do with the contextualization of the gospel. We all contextualize the gospel to a certain extent. but We have no desire to water it down so that it can be acceptable by people who have no interest in taking up their cross and following Jesus. And much of that struggle can be traced back to preachers who stand in that pulpit.
That is not the way of Jesus. The cross of Calvary launched the greatest countercultural movement ever known to humanity. Our ways are not the ways of this world. Everything about the kingdom of God is counterintuitive to the wisdom of the world and diametrically opposed to the values of the world today. And they attempt, the attempt made by preachers to make the gospel palatable to a culture. It may draw a crowd. It will never build a church. We are not here by accident. If we follow Jesus, He has ordained our steps to be in this particular place, in this particular time today. Doesn't mean you'll be here forever. Maybe, maybe not. But today you are here, and by your signifying this, that this is your home church, I take that to mean that God has called me to preach the word to those who are here. And we don't know what the future holds. There may be some here today that God calls you to be an elder here or somewhere else and feed the people of God. You don't know where God is, is taking us. But my prayer, this is a prayer that I pray, is that God would place at least one more man within this congregation who serves as an elder among us in pastoral ministry. That is a prayer that I actively pray. Because pastoral ministry within the local church is never spoken of in the New Testament in the singular, it's always in the plural. I was kind of raised to think that there is one pastor in a congregation. And the New Testament simply does not frame it that way. In the New Testament, it is always spoken of in the plural. There are elders in the church. If we are to follow the New Testament model for the church, the singular pastor model in a church plant should be for a limited time. So as part of your prayers for our church, I ask you that you would pray that God would raise up here and call elders according to His will. So go back to Peter. Three times Peter denied Christ in the courtyard. Three times Christ affirms His love for Peter and Peter reciprocates. And then three times Christ calls Peter to go feed and tend for my people. And three weeks later, Peter preaches a sermon on the day of Pentecost that God uses to open up the eyes of the very people who killed Jesus. And on that day, 3,000 people are baptized into the kingdom three weeks after John 21. John 21, Peter has decided, I'm going to be a fisherman. Again, I'm done with this. Three weeks after that, He's standing in front of people, boldly proclaiming Jesus, the same Jesus he denied nine weeks ago. I mean, I want you to see how, how short the time is. We're not, this is not a span of months or years. This is within the span of two, two and a half months from the time of Peter denying Jesus, being restored, and standing and boldly proclaiming, this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. They were pricked in their hearts. And 3,000 people that day were... Fed. So read what Peter writes many years later. So put away, this is in 1 Peter chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then he says, and I, I love studying scripture because you see things for the first time. I have always read verse 2 to say, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. So I thought he's making an analogy. Like 
newborn infants long for spiritual milk. And I looked at that and I said, wait a minute, saw this last night, there's a comma after infants, which makes it read, like newborn infants, long, and now that long becomes a command, long for pure spiritual milk. Now it's not an analogy, and so I, this is why we value commentaries and resources, because we don't want to assume and be out misinterpreting Scripture. So you go and consult people who have studied this in the original languages, and you consult more than one source and say, yes, the consensus here is that's why there is a comma there, because that word long is a command. It's not an analogy. He's saying, just like newborn babies do, you long for, you go desire pure spiritual milk. That's the difference a comma can make, and that's why we read Scripture carefully. Why? That by it you may grow up into salvation. Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word long is a command. We desire pure spiritual milk. That's what we do here. We feed people the Bible. So starting May 10th on Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock, um, we are going to host in our home um, at 7 o'clock, we're going to host a weekly Bible study. It's going to be a time of fellowship, some prayer, but we're really going to dig in and get to know our Bibles in ways that we can't even do during a sermon. I'm not, this is not another sermon. I'm not going to be preaching. This is not going to be a monologue. It's going to be dialogue. So there's going to be interaction, questions the whole time. I'm going to keep it loose. But the goal, the desire there is, we want people to understand their Bible. I said, I think it was to, to Brad earlier this week, it was to somebody, I said, you know, there are people who have attended church two and three times a week for 30 years that if we really found out how much they actually knew about their Bible, we'd be shocked. Because if you don't get that at church, where else are you going to get that? Just simply the reading of Scripture, the studying of Scripture, the, the speaking of Scripture. We, we, we read a chapter every week from the Bible. And that really was put in my head five years ago by Dr. James Littles. When we were talking about church planting, he said, Jeff, I think you would agree with me that we think there should be more reading of Scripture in a church service than there is. He said, because how many times we come to church, we actually don't hear the Bible read. It's like, if we stop and think about it, there's a problem. So we're doing our best to correct that. We're not going to be perfect at it, but we're going to, we're going to make an attempt to help people know their Bibles. Because if you know the Bible, you can more rightly know the God of the Bible, the one we worship. We don't worship Scripture, we worship the God of Scripture, but we know Christ rightly. We know God truly through Scripture, because without Scripture, you know very little about God. You have, in theology, you have what's called general revelation, and you have this, this specific revelation that comes. And general revelation speaks of what you know about God outside of Scripture. And you know some things. I, this is why civilizations that have never had any encounter with anybody, you go into the, the deep jungles and you find them worshiping. Why? Because they know there's a deity. They know there's a creator. They, they invent multiple gods, sun gods and moon gods. There, there's a revelation there that there is a creator. There's something there. 
But the scripture gives us specific revelation about how to know God and how to know him rightly. So Wednesday, it's ten, uh, not this Wednesday, but the next Wednesday at 10 o'clock, for those who cannot attend in person, we're going to do our best to try to uh, connect through video to live stream. It won't be live stream for the public, but it will be kind of like a Zoom meeting where you can be invited and connect. So anybody that wants to come could be invited and, and participate that way. And uh, may take us a while to figure that out exactly, but that's, that's the goal. Because as a church, we are going to lead people in worship unto God, and we're going to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our goal, leading people in worship and making disciples. If we can accomplish that, I believe we will have accomplished God's will. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, once again this morning, I can't see what you're doing in this church, in this city, but we trust and believe that you are working in ways that we don't even yet see miraculously, supernaturally through the operation of the Holy Spirit, touching hearts and minds, preparing people, preparing hearts, paving the way for conversations to do what only you can do. Father, this morning, one of our greatest prayers is that you would lead us, uh, by us being sensitive to your spirit, that you would lead us to hungry people. Uh, the gospel is for hungry people. And you would lead us to people who are, uh, that you've prepared their hearts to receive the word. We see in Acts 16 that while people may minister, that unless you're behind the scenes opening up the hearts and spiritual eyes and minds, that our words are in vain. But Lord, if you open up the heart, then our words that we speak are your words and they are life and they bring faith that regenerates, that brings people unto you. So Lord, I ask you this morning, anoint us, help us, Lord, for our greatest prayers is help us to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, to know your voice, that still small voice that speaks to our hearts in a world that is full of noise and full of voices that we would slow down long enough to stop and say, Lord, here I am, speak and use me. Let us be lights, let us be witnesses in a very lost and dark world. Lord, help us to heal brokenness in the lives of people. Help us to have words, that not our words, but in the moment that you would grant us a divine infusion of anointing that would grant us words to speak, Lord, to minister to others. Now go with us this week. Touch us, be with us, keep your hand upon us. We ask this in the name above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you this morning as we close in song.